Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. The following is a recording of a virtual town hall presented by the SAR School in New York on May 4, 2020, featuring a discussion about promising monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID-19 by Dr. Jill Horowitz, the Executive Director of Rockefeller University, as well as a general update about COVID-19 and information about antibody testing and the new pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome from pediatric emergency room physician at Cohen's Children's Hospital, Dr. Josh Rocker. Erev good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining us tonight. It's uh, good to see all of you here with us. We do have uh, um, a full agenda. I um, hope that uh, you're able to enjoy some of the good weather over the course of Shabbat and, uh, and Sunday, and that week has gotten off to a good start. Um, as is our practice, before getting to the agenda, we would like to say a parak of Tehillim. Uh, please join me, Ms. Baruch Kufchaf Aleph, as we pray together for the refuah, uh, for for those who are ill, for the continued good health, for those who are in good health. And we pray for our uh, leaders to uh, be blessed with the wisdom to make uh, best decisions on the part, on behalf of our uh, community, both local and global. Ezri meim Adonai Yosei Shamay Baretz Al yitain lamod raglecha al yanum shamrecha Hine lo yanum belo yisham shomer Yisrael Adonai shamrecha Adonai tzilcha yad yiminecha Yomam Hashem eslo yakeka v'yareach balayla Adonai Shmarcha Mikara Ishmor Esnafshecha Adonai Yishmor Tesla Uvoecha Meata Viadola Puashlema and good health to all. <clears throat> we have a full agenda this evening. Um, we actually, over the course of the past few weeks, it has been remarkable to be able to uh, commemorate the days of Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikaron, also to celebrate together Yom HaTzma'ut um, as faculty, family, students together. And uh, it has actually been remarkable, although very different, to be able to commemorate and celebrate those days to, as a community. And at this point in the year, um, as our governor has decided that uh, school is closed, we know where we're headed um, towards the end of the academic year, our attention is certainly turning towards uh, the end of the year, um, how to manage uh, the, the next stages as there are potentially partial openings, et cetera. And we are thinking, as you will hear later this evening, um, about graduations, both in eighth grade and 12th grade. And we look forward to celebrating those in the proper way and at its proper time, thinking about the summer, and also thinking about uh, school opening in the beginning of next year, which we are fully committed to that happening in the strongest possible way. And we are working and planning for that, uh, again, as you will uh, begin to hear later this evening. 
Uh, before we get to our agenda, just a couple of announcements. Important to remind everyone and bring to everyone's attention that um, this is also an important uh, fundraising time for our community to know how difficult uh, this is for um, individual families in so many different circumstances. And at the same time, we are uh, beginning our Shavuot appeal, which does make all the difference. And in a certain sense now, more than ever, it is important uh, for those who have capacity and ability to be able to support our Shiva to uh, help with uh, the Shavuot appeal. Two sub aspects of that program. First, next Tuesday, I want to remind everyone is Lagba Omer, May 12th, B for SAR Day and um, SAR Strong. There is information distributed uh, about that uh, that day. Also, uh, we are having a chesed drive collecting clothing, books, and household items. Uh, please look out for information as to how to donate those items. Um, we have been, as a community, amazing in supporting each other uh, within the community and beyond, and uh, appreciate your any support that you can give um, to these causes. I also want to remind everyone that this week is Teacher Appreciation Week. Um, every year, Teacher Appreciation Week is important, and it is what a great cause. There's uh, the SAR faculty, teachers in general, our faculty in particular, uh, doesn't really get much better. And so you think about them, we said it many times um, at our gatherings, and it can't be said enough. Uh, that the faculty of SAR Academy and SAR High School over the past couple of months, their dedication and commitment to students, the love that they have shown, the care for students, for parents, um, for each other has been nothing short of remarkable. And uh, whatever you can do to express some appreciation to teacher, I'm sure they will be very grateful. So I bring that to your attention. We have a number of things on our agenda. I'm honored for us to start um, with, um, again, as you're looking towards hopefully processes that can uh, help cure this disease. Uh, we are privileged to have with us uh, Dr. Jill Horowitz. Dr. Horowitz is the Executive Director of uh, Strategic Operations, the Laboratory of Molecular Immunology at Rockefeller University. Um, that lab uh, has focused on aspects of developing antibodies. I should also say that Dr. Horowitz is a hopefully proud graduate of uh, a parent of three SAR graduates as well. Um, and scientists at Rockefeller University um, have embarked on various research projects to clone antibodies uh, in order to be able to help uh, combat COVID-19. Um, and uh, we are really honored to have Dr. Horowitz uh, with us this evening. She will describe the research that is happening at Rockefeller University. Please feel free to submit questions in the chat. Uh, it'll moderate uh, questions and ask uh, Dr. Horowitz some of those questions uh, when she's finished presenting. Dr. Horowitz, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hartstark. And I, I wanna say first, thank you very much for inviting me and tell you how wonderful it feels to be back in the SAR community in an active way. And thank you very much for the very, I think the most accurate introduction that anybody has given me. So I know you've been doing your homework. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about, uh, about the approach, um, and then I'm going to talk about where I think the antibody approach sits in the, in the broad spectrum of ways to address the, the COVID-19 disease. Um, so if you, if you uh, think of, for a minute 
about HIV, you may know that there are people who have HIV, who are HIV positive, who uh, we call them elite controllers, and they are folks, and there are very few of them, but they can control their HIV without drugs. And years ago, when, when this phenomenon was observed, um, immunologists and virologists thought about it, and they realized that they one one potential way that this could be achieved would, would be by those people having the ability to make antibodies that did not become obsolete because of the evolution of the virus, because HIV changes very quickly, um, but made a type of antibody that was special, and we call them broadly neutralizing antibodies because they recognize many versions of the virus, and thereby those patients can control the various iterations of the virus. These antibodies don't get developed quickly. They, they are not developed before two years of infection, but that's been the case with HIV. And because of that, a number of groups, including the laboratory that I work with, the laboratory of Michelle Nussenzweig at the Rockefeller, set about to try to identify those antibodies and to clone them and characterize them and understand quite a lot about the human immune system by understanding those antibodies. Uh, and this, this lab, among others, um, achieved this objective. Uh, they were able to take this, the blood from people who were elite controllers and use the protein that sits on the surface of the HIV virus to pull out the B cells, the antibody producing cells from those, from those patients and then separate them into single cells and then that's what a clone is. And then they were able to clone those cells. So then they could sequence the antibodies and they could then clone those sequences into a vector that would produce theoretically as much protein as you need. Those proteins can then be put back into people and those people could be tested for whether or not those antibodies are safe. But, but once it's demonstrated that they're safe in a small group of people, um, those people could, be, could go around in the world and some of them would be exposed to the virus. And if there were more people who, who got the disease with the placebo group then got the disease with the antibody, then the antibody is, can be demonstrated to protect those people. Likewise, those antibodies can be given to patients who are being given drugs for HIV, and those drugs can be withdrawn. And in the case where no antibody is given, those people will will become viremic again and they'll that means the virus will come out of hiding and start to reproduce and and they'll get sick they'll get hiv again but if they get the antibody the antibody can substitute for a drug and can protect those people from getting sick again from hiv so this so the lab was funded by the bill and melinda gates foundation to do that project and those uh, those antibodies have been cloned and have been given to I think about 250 people so far, and the Gates Foundation and we were getting ready to go to Africa because the foundation is interested in protecting people in the areas of greatest HIV burden in Sub-Saharan Africa when the COVID crisis hit. And uh, since 
many scientists were paying attention to COVID disease in China, um, the NIH became involved and asked us to use that same approach to try to identify antibodies that would do the same thing and protect people and become a therapy for against COVID disease. So let's see, I think uh, we were very fortunate in being able to have the support of the SAR community and the uh, New Rochelle Jewish community um, and folks from all over New York City um, to enroll them in a clinical trial for people who recovered under the, uh, under the assumption that those people recovered because they produced antibodies that, that allowed their immune system to recognize the virus and to fight against the virus and to cure them of the disease. And uh, we did this incredibly quickly because the community stepped up to the plate and uh, we had, we enrolled over a hundred people in, I think about three weeks time. And we were able to start to uh, character, to isolate and identify and clone and characterize those antibodies. So uh, we, are, we are now at the point where we really don't need any more volunteers. We have enough antibodies. We've been able to identify several and in fact um, submitted several patent, uh, patent applications a week ago. And last night, the first publication was submitted uh, for, it's being reviewed at um, Nature Medicine. And it describes the isolation of the antibodies, but I think maybe more importantly for the field, what we've learned about them, um, which I can get into in a few minutes. But before I go there, I, I, I want to talk about why I think it's important to have monoclonal antibodies as a tool against SARS-CoV-2 or the novel coronavirus, as it's called. So here's what I think, you know, having, having worked in drug development for a lot of my adult life, here's what I think we need in order to fight against a disease for which we were not adequately prepared, where we unfortunately got behind the transmission. You know, the transmission is, you know, beating us by a few weeks because the numbers that we see are, are several weeks old and they reflect what happened several weeks ago because of the lag period. So what would be great um, would be if we could take a drug off the shelf and have a repurposed drug to, to help address the people who are very sick. And um, I think everybody saw the other day that remdesivir was given an emergency approval by the FDA because there was a controlled clinical trial in which it was demonstrated that in a statistically significant way that patients who were given a course of remdesivir recovered uh, four, four days more quickly than those, 11, out of 11 days versus 15 days, um, so four days more quickly than patients who were given placebo. So we're, we're starting to make some progress toward getting a drug that's available now that we can take off the shelf, that we have you know, reasonably good supplies of that'll help to address the people that are sick and in the hospital. We could use more and maybe remdesivir will, will work in patients who have less severe disease but it is an infused drug, which means you have to come to the hospital to get it, so it's not trivial to give. We would, we would really like if there were a pill that we could give out that were in a, a warehouse somewhere, um, but you know, we haven't identified that yet. And then um, the, best, you know, the best healthcare value um, 
you know, for, for the dollar is always a vaccine because they're not that expensive to make. And you only have to give a little bit of a vaccine and you give it and the person is immune for a good long period of time. Um, but vaccines, you know, have to be tested in thousands and thousands of people and they take some time to make and, you know, they don't always work. So a vaccine, you know, I think, you know, I think it's, it's reasonably likely that we will have a vaccine, but it may not happen in the short term. Um, if you look at, for example, Ebola, the last uh, significant Ebola outbreak uh, was in 2014, and the vaccine was just approved in December of 2019. So it took five years to make the Ebola vaccine. So there's a big gap um, in between hopefully a drug that we will have now and whenever a vaccine will become available. And we think that monoclonal antibodies are one way to fill that gap. And why is that? Because when you vaccinate someone, you're giving them a facsimile of the virus, something that their immune system hopefully will recognize and respond to and make antibodies and recruit all of the other immune cells to neutralize the virus, to kill the virus. Um, as a preventative. When you give them the monoclonal antibody that we talked about earlier, you're giving them the antibody. You're not depending upon their immune system to recognize anything. You're giving them the component of the immune system that you hope that they will make when they are vaccinated. So, and typically uh, antibodies are less complicated to make than a vaccine because because they're not all that different from each other. And we know a lot about how to make antibodies. There are lots of antibody drugs that are on the market right now. So once we have identified them and cloned them, they should come onto the market more quickly than a vaccine. And as I said, they're much higher probability of success, especially those that actually come from human beings, such as the ones we're talking about um, that have been identified at the Rockefeller. So that's my, that's my little short spiel. And um, I could tell you more, but I think, you know, we, you would probably be happier if I answered any questions that you might have, because I know antibodies are a big topic now, and people may be confused about the difference between an antibody test and a therapeutic antibody. So you know, I see my role, you know, as to help clarify any questions that you might have. Um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Horowitz. We, uh, thank you so much for being here and for presenting. Um, the, uh, could you give us a little bit of a sense? First of all, is this type of antibody work happening in other places um, around the world? And uh, are some people ahead uh, of others? Like, are you learning from others who go in this kind of on your own? And is the process, second, is the process from when you identify that the antibodies actually work until they can be marketed, is there a different pace at which that can happen than, for example, a vaccine, just in terms of being able to scale it up for uh, distribution? Right. Those are both great questions. So because I think um, the Nussenzweig lab is very well known, you know, a lot of other labs come to us to collaborate. So I, I think we are pretty well aware of what the other leaders in the field are doing. And, you know, when people publish the papers, a lot of the publications come to us for review. 
So this is very helpful. Um, it means we can learn from them and they can learn from us. Um, I should add that the approach that we are taking to make monoclonal antibodies is not the only one. There are companies like Regeneron, for example, who made a very effective monoclonal antibody against Ebola. So effective that remdesivir was shelved at that time. And Regeneron doesn't, doesn't go to convalescent patients. They have a very fast way of making a huge number of antibodies um, and it, without people. And then they will select the ones that they think are good. So we're certainly in collaboration with Regeneron. In fact, we sent them some of our antibodies, um, I think toward the end of last week, because we want to, one thing we do want to understand is, for example, is their laboratory assay behaving the same way that our laboratory assay is, so that we can understand if we're getting a great signal and they're getting a lousy signal, we need to understand that as well. So, you know, science tends to be, good science tends to be self-correcting. And, and I think that, so that, I, I hope that, that answers your question. Lots of people are doing it. I don't know if anybody, it's hard to know if anybody's really ahead. I think we're all going as fast as we can and we're all learning from each other. So, uh, and you know, in our minds, that's, I think in all of the scientists' minds, that's a very good thing. So with respect to um, manufacturing, it depends. So typically a, so there, the good thing about a vaccine is that you need very little of it. You give it one or two, or maybe, you know, you do a prime and then maybe a couple of boosts, if you remember, you know, from when your kids were babies, they had a, you know, a DPT shot and then a booster and then another booster a year later. And then you're basically done. You may have to get your vaccines refreshed if you travel to a place where the disease is endemic when you're an adult. But, you know, that's why a vaccine really is the best healthcare dollar that we can spend and why the WHO and the UN spend um, so many resources giving vaccines to children in the in the developing world exactly for that reason because you can prevent a tremendous amount of disease for a few pennies really uh, so that's the that's the world of vaccines of course you have to get there and getting there you know can can be hard you know to build a factory these products vaccines and antibodies they're biologics which means they're not they're not created by a chemical synthesis they grow in in, in animal cells usually so if you've ever been to a brewery or a distillery and you've seen those huge steel um, fermenters, that's, that's how you make antibodies. That's also how you make vaccine. And th those, those fermenters are, are not, they have to be kept very sterile because they're a good place for all kinds of adventitious agents to live. So it's expensive um, to make them, much more expensive than to make a pill or a powder. Uh, and so to build a factory from a, what we would call a green field, you know, if you went out and there was no factory, you had to build fr from a green field, that's typically a five-year process. To retool a factory is typically a two-year process. So that retooling or building has to be done in parallel with testing in people, testing for efficacy and safety. So that's true for a vaccine. That's also true for an antibody. The, the reason that an antibody will be faster is that antibodies 
typically all resemble each other. They have a they have a they're they're a long polypeptide chain, but a lot of an a lot of the antibody doesn't vary from antibody to antibody because it has the same job. You know, it's there to kill the virus. So antibodies are more of a cookie cutter process than vaccines. But the real answer is that it really depends on the dose. So if, if you happen to have a very potent antibody, you don't need very much, so you need to make very much. So it's easier to scale up. And so that's what the whole characterization phase is about. You know, you shouldn't go into people if you don't have an antibody that's going to be extremely potent because you won't be able to manufacture it and give it to enough people in a, in a, in a reasonable period of time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know we have many more questions, but I, I think that uh, the night is uh, full. So Dr. Horowitz, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. Wish you all the best in this very important project. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi Kraus, you're up next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Horowitz. Thank you for coming back into, uh, to our community and being part of this community. Thanks for coming back in this capacity. Um, one more thing on antibiotic testing. I know Dr. Rocker has a couple of things to say about it as well. Um, aside from the work of the Rockefeller Center, we um, are blessed to have among us um, some connections to Columbia University and the uh, Vlad and Shoshana Schendelman have been working with them on antibody testing as well and hoping to use actually SIR as a cohort um, to, 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 as part of their study and to obviously help us uh, learn from this. So we are going to share more um, with you about that as that becomes known, but they're excited to be working with us. Um, we are grateful to Vlad and Shoshana for making that happen. Um, and we look forward to sharing that with you uh, for the benefit of all um, as we continue to uh, continue to learn and continue to do. Um, echoing what my heart Stark said around Teacher Appreciation Week, thank you to our teachers for all the incredible work that they're doing, and thank you to you uh, for expressing that appreciation to our teachers, which I know uh, goes a long way um, and means a lot. I looked through the questions that you wrote. I had a meeting with our Academy Board of Ed just a couple of hours ago, um, and it feels like there are a couple of big things on our mind, which we'll talk about in a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but Dr. Rocker, it's been two weeks. Um, I know that we spoke yesterday, uh, your feelings about some of the testings that are going on. And my big question to you, which I think is everybody's question is, like, what phase are we in? How do we get from, I don't know, phase zero to phase one or phase one to phase two? Is there room for some clarity or changes or possible relaxation of some of the guidelines and not, or if not, not? Um, how do we communicate that to our kids? Um, kind of where do you stand on that? And what are the next couple of weeks look like? Um, that would be really helpful to us before we move to some of our uh, school business. Thank you, Dr. Rocker, as always. Great. Well, thank you, guys. Um, so the, I want to give a status update first. Uh, so the status update, as everyone knows, is we are doing a lot better. Um, uh, New York City has seen a, a significant decline in the number of admissions to the hospitals. Um, and the ICUs, which we knew were going to lag behind um, the peak by around 10 days or so are now uh, showing a significant decrease as well. Um, we are still not nearly out of the woods. Um, so uh, if you look at emergency rooms, their numbers are lower than they usually are. So that is great. ICUs are still at, you know, three, four times their capacity. Um, so ICUs are still um, very busy, um, but we are much better than where we were. 
Um, uh, there are no issues of uh, PPE at most institutions, um, and there are no issues of ventilators uh, at any of the institutions that I know of. So that is all phenomenal. So in regards to flattening the curve and all of the efforts that people have done um, and the hardships that people have taken on, you have been successful and you've done an excellent, excellent job. So we're going to talk history for a second, and people oftentimes uh, times have mentioned, you may have heard in the New York Times or elsewhere, that the main uh, sort of data that we know in regards to, or some of the first data that we know in regards to how quarantining worked was we compared Philadelphia to St. Louis and how they reacted in 1917, 1918 um, to the influenza epidemic. And people in Philadelphia, weren't told to do anything differently. They had a parade and you saw a huge spike um, in uh, the number of patients who got sick and died. St. Louis was cautious and they said, you know, quarantine, um, social distancing, and that worked. You saw a very small spike. So that's where a lot of the data about social distancing and quarantine came, uh, came from. But one thing that people haven't spoken about is what happened weeks later. Uh, St. Louis, which everyone championed for doing such a great job, had a second spike that was higher than their first spike after they eased their social distancing. So yes, we have done an excellent job, but you need to understand that if we just get lax about everything, there is a risk that we are going to spike up again, um, and there is the potential that it will be a very high spike as well. Um, so in regards to policymakers, they know this in regards to um, in, uh, the decision making on when to ease things. Uh, the Department of Health is being pretty clear and Governor Cuomo is being very uh, clear. There are certain indicators that need to be met and we have not met them yet. So the fact that emissions are down, great. ICUs are not where we want them to be. Um, and testing levels, those are the three main indicators. Testing levels are not as low, sorry, testing positivity is not as low as we want it to be. Um, so we have not met indicators to say, ease up, all is fine. But can we sigh a huge, significant, uh, you know, like can we give a huge sigh of relief? Yes. Um, so that's a little bit about a status update on flattening the curve and um, uh, sort of the success that New York has had. Um, you're seeing throughout the country changes where people are now easing things. And that's because sort of what they have experienced is a little bit different. And I'm gonna get into a little bit more of the social distancing uh, at the end. Um, another status update is the CDC and the Department of Health um, have kind of that no medication that has, uh, initially been used, being the hydroxychloroquine, the azithromycin, um, none of these have shown to be effective. And the reason uh, that's important is because some people are, are now hearing, they're changing what they're doing in the hospitals, and that's because, because evidence is now coming out that what we initially did, what we initially focused on, um, was based on you know, data that was kind of um, insufficient. And now that we have more and more data, we're realizing that those medicines don't, uh, aren't helping as much. And the reason that's important is because, you know, everyone is jumping on that antibody, uh, antibody uh, or uh, convalescent serum 
fad, like this is what we have to do. And the issue is we don't know if it is effective yet. We have to be very clear before we spend millions of dollars um, and time, energy, and money um, on therapies to know if they work before uh, we jump into it. And so what we should do is we have to have research, we have to have data, we have to have studies that are being done um, to really obtain more and more information. Um, and so that I think is really, really important to understand. I wanna take a, a moment and talk about pediatrics because things have changed. Um, just to look at the perspective. So I, employee of Northwell, um, which has seen 14,000 hospitalized patients. Of that number, around 150 or so have been pediatric. So we know that the impact on pediatrics has been very, very little, um, and it tends to be adolescents. It tends to be older patients. We've had many, many um, positive, uh, COVID-positive uh, births, meaning that the mother was positive. We know that around 15 to 20% of all women who are giving birth in our hospitals um, are giving birth and their kids are fine and oftentimes are not, and are not COVID positive. They may get it later uh, from exposure from family members, but they're, it's not being transmitted necessarily uh, during, the, during birth or the birth canal. Um, and those kids, even when they become COVID positive, generally are fine. Um, so that has been a phenomenal message and uh, it has been fantastic because, you know, the pediatric hospitals have been able to help out the adult hospitals. Things are different as of the last week or two. Um, there is a new thing that is occurring and, and we're seeing is that there is an inflammatory process that the COVID uh, virus causes and it may happen um, a week or two or three after the initial uh, exposure of COVID. Um, and these kids are coming in uh, with some serious medical problems. Uh, they are coming in uh, with the inflammation affecting their heart. Um, and so, uh, and, and I can tell you, uh, I just came from the hospital. We have two kids in our ER right now uh, with this. We are seeing around one to two kids a day in uh, our hospital. Uh, who are presenting with this, and most of them are needing to be admitted to the ICU. Uh, so the numbers are trending a little bit. We're still not even close to the adult numbers. And I could also tell you prognostically, these kids are doing well, um, but uh, they are presenting you know, uh, with high fevers uh, and oftentimes with some sort of skin manifestation as well, and they look very sick. Um, so I know this is gonna open up a whole bunch of questions of, oh my gosh, my kid had a fever and a rash, do I have to be horrified? If your kid looks fine, uh, you don't have to be horrified, but especially in light of what we know right now, um, I would contact your pediatrician uh, in a situation like that, uh, just so you could have clarity and even have, you know, potentially telemedicine uh, to have the pediatrician look at your child and make sure everything is fine. Um, so it is still a small number of patients, but I would tell you around 50% of our ICU right now are kids with COVID related issues. Um, and it's not um, the older kids anymore. It's also younger kids. Um, so again, the numbers are very small. The odds are very low uh, um, uh, of this occurring, but it is definitely creeping up and it's something that we have to be very aware of. Um, and that also raises concern about the whole social distancing and easing, um, just because we know that we haven't seen the end of this at all. 
Um, antibody testing. That is, you know, uh, the hot thing now. Everyone wants it done and everyone wants to, and, and some people want it done because if I'm positive, I can then donate my blood uh, for convalescent serum. So convalescent serum means that you have had it, you have antibodies, um, and uh, the lab would take out some of your blood and uh, sort of isolate the antibodies and give that uh, to people who are sick. Um, so antibody testing, first of all, the pinprick test, uh, those are generally not reliable. Um, so doing the serum test would be a whole blood test um, is more reliable. Um, and what I would recommend, if you can get the testing within a research group, um, I would recommend doing that because right now we don't fully know how to interpret the results um, if they are positive. So if I have antibodies because I was exposed and I now have antibodies to COVID, I don't know if I'm going to have antibodies in three months. I don't know if I'm going to have antibodies in three weeks or in, in six months. And so we can't generalize that because I have antibodies today that I am immune uh, to COVID and I can go out and I can volunteer, you know, uh, with the elderly or something like that who needs my help because I can't give them anything. That is just not true. We don't, it may ultimately find it, we may find it to be true, but we are not saying it is true at this point. We still don't know how to interpret the antibody tests and the way we will learn how to interpret it is if people enter uh, research studies and then they are tracked and followed and then we could figure out, um, much more information about what these antibody tests mean. So if people are getting them done at urgy centers or getting them done by their pediatrician or internist, I do not want people to interpret a positive antibody test, meaning that I'm immune, I can you know, go about uh, my ways and not be concerned about social distancing at, at all anymore. That is not the case. Um, so more information needs to be learned about this um, and time will tell ultimately uh, about the antibody testing. So. Uh, if you can get tested within a research group, you will be giving power um, to the science, and then we can get to the answers a little bit faster. So if that's possible, I would recommend doing that. So social distancing and addressing that. There was a great um, study that was done. I heard about this on, on the radio to work this morning, where people uh, were analyzing the distance between cell phones right? Uh, they, they could track this by GPS. And they knew how far people were, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, when we were really quarantining very well, and you got a certain social distancing value. And then they found out this weekend that that value just like plummeted, um, just because it was great weather, the news is good. And so people are interacting and hanging out together. Um, so there's no evidence right now to say that we need to, uh, that we can ease uh, in regards to social distancing. Now, let me address uh, another issue in regards to sort of the mental health of being inside, being cooped up. We're in three months of this, people are losing their minds. Um, so as always, we have been advocating going outside, getting exercise outside, and when you go, staying within the cohort of your family, of your nuclear family. Now, I have heard you know, I, I saw videos of what Central Park looked like. People were telling me about what North Riverdale looked like. You know, I've heard from other communities as well is that families were getting together. They were playing ball. They were playing um, um, uh, soccer out in the fields. There was even minions in some places. So we have to be extraordinarily careful, right? We do not want uh, a significant second peak. Um, and 
Yes, we are past the peak, but remember, COVID is still dangerous, right? It is still a deadly disease. It is not any less deadly today than it was, you know, uh, four weeks ago. Um, and uh, just for some statistics, as of now, there have been 70,000 deaths in the United States, 25,000 in New York State, and around uh, just under 14,000 in New York City alone. So when people were like, oh, it's kind of like the flu, it's not like the flu. It is much worse than the flu. Um, so it is still dangerous and we have to still be cautious. So if you ask me, can I, you know, go to someone's backyard and talk to them from 10 feet away, you know, and chat it up a little bit uh, on Shabbos. If you are practicing social distancing, if you are wearing masks, if you are not, you know, uh, close to them, um, I do not think that is, uh, something that is so terrible because I think we also have to recommend, well, recognize the challenges uh, that people are having at their homes and the mental health consequences for these things. Um, but I do not want people to say, oh, you know, we can go to someone's house and then let down their guard. When you're there as parents, you have to be responsible for your children and you have to make sure that they're not just going off and playing with each other. And if you think that they cannot be, then they cannot, you know, uh, get together. Um, I think getting together in like, again, if you walk to your neighbor's house and, you know, and you're uh, talking across the fence, I think that is fine. Or if you're talking, you know, you know, 10, 15 feet away, that's fine. Um, but it should not be many families getting together. No, really, it should be one family with another family at a, at a, at a distance. And if you can't monitor that distance, then it shouldn't be done. Um, so that's what I want to say about that. Um, Another thing that I want to uh, talk about, and I don't want to take up too much time because I also want to answer a question or have, uh, have you uh, address some questions, is people are fearful of doctors and people are fearful of hospitals right now. Um, and a consequence for that, and we have seen this in our ER and multiple ERs across uh, the country, I've seen that people are coming in too late for certain things um, or coming in later than they usually would. So please still contact your primary care pediatrician or internist if you are not feeling well, COVID or not COVID related. Another thing that we are seeing are people are not getting vaccines, right? So if you have children and it is time for their vaccines, most pediatricians are open and will uh, vaccinate uh, your children at this time. Um, we do not want to have the consequences for social distancing and the fear of what is going on to not take care of basic health care that is going to be uh, um, that will feel the consequences for you know in a year two three years later um, or even months uh, so i think i'll pause there if there are other questions i'm totally happy uh, to hear them i just wanted to cover those topics quickly thank you as always um <laughs> the questions that i know that you're going to have a hard time answering but uh but, but the question is that, that's on all of our minds, right? One, one person asked, when does that caution end? Is, are we, are we going to be, what you just described, is that going on until there's a vaccine? Is there a middle ground? Might there be a middle ground or a middle stage? How do you, how do you envision that if you, can, if you can help us a little bit? Yeah, so uh, I am not a policymaker, but I uh, read up on what the policymakers are saying. And as I said, there are indicators that they say have to be met. We have to have 10 or 14 days of admissions being below a certain number. We have to have 10 or 14 days where ICUs are at 
a low capacity, meaning that if it spikes again, when, you know, because uh, we, by the way, we know when we ease things up, more people are going to get sick and die. We just want to do it to get along with our lives. But the consequences are people are going to die because of it. And the reality is if you only focus on the, the uh, medical aspect, you get kind of paralyzed. But there are other collateral issues, which are, as I mentioned, mental health. And for people who are living paycheck to paycheck and aren't essential workers and they need to get back to the workforce. So there are lots of factors going on. So, you know, our government and our policy, you know, people who are making the policies want to or have to make that balance between the safety of people in regards to COVID and the safety of people mental health wise and the safety of people who are living day to day, you know, with, uh, with uh, minimal paychecks coming in. Um, so there are lots, lots of issues and it's not only COVID uh, that are the decision making, but there, I mean, as I mentioned, there are standards that are set for when we can open up things and we're not close there yet. Anything that you think we're learning or we might be learning from Sweden or Georgia? Um, or anywhere else? Uh, so, so, the, so I, I don't know. I, I can't explain what's going on in the rest of America versus New York. Like, I, I think that is baffling a whole bunch of people. Um, why, uh, you know, other, other states that have, you know, uh, subway systems or are also, uh, you know, concentrated areas of the city haven't been hit nearly as bad as New York. The issue is we live in New York and New York has been hit tremendously. Um, and we could talk about Sweden. We're not Sweden. Um, so we're New York and, uh, you know, again, you know, people are looking at the data and seeing, um, the different policy, uh, decisions that countries are making and seeing um, how they impact the health of those areas, it all makes sense for the future. Right now, based upon what we did, we are still you know, knee deep in it. Okay, well, we will speak to you again. It sounds like the bottom line for now is uh, we're sticking with what, uh, what you have recommended you know, over the last number of weeks or even more. And again, we appreciate your guidance. And I, we know, listen, I know it as a parent, we walked around. It was a beautiful weekend. You want to interact with people and obviously kind of find the balance of something that we're all struggling with. And we, we deeply are deeply, deeply grateful for your guidance. I want, to, I want to shift for a moment. We're going to finish by nine o'clock. I want to shift for a moment for a couple of things that I know um, is on everyone's minds. And again, similar to some of the medical uh, advice, we're going to have very, very general thoughts, but, but we haven't gotten there yet because there's just too much missing information. Um, for our eighth graders and for our 12th graders, um, I'm a parent of a 12th grader. This is, this is hard to think about graduation, to think about milestones that are being reached without really being, um, or, you know, might not be celebrated the way uh, those kids deserve. We're really, really hoping that we can figure out a way to do that, obviously to do it safely, to do it appropriately, uh, but to market in a way that will be meaningful, that will be memorable um, to them. We are looking at many, many different options, um, you know, and really, hope that over the next, I would say, two to three weeks, we can solidify that based on what the actual options are and based on what the guidance is. We've actually reached out to our 
kind of more local um, elected officials to help us with that. We know that others have put out official guidance regarding graduations. We haven't received that yet, uh, but we hope to, and hopefully obviously use that first of all, to speak to the venues and they'll know what their rules are. Um, and then to know if there's something that we can do, what that is, whether that's in June or in August uh, or some kind of hybrid. Uh, you know, I'm, we're not holding information back from you. We're really sharing with you that we, we just don't know, but that it matters. Um, and that for those uh, close to 250 kids, we really hope that this will be, that we will figure out a way uh, to make this a memorable and meaningful experience. Um, summer's on your minds, we know that. Like I said before, I think um, we had a meeting with our, with our Academy Board of Education. Um, we care about our kids uh, 12, 12 months of the year. Um, I spoke to a number of people running camps. They don't know yet either. I think that they're also committed to mid end of May to making those decisions. They are hopeful. Um, some camps are hopeful that they'll be able to figure out a way to run. And obviously if that can happen um, in a safe way, that would be great. Um, and if it can't, um, then we're going to be speaking to everyone, to, to our communal partners, to make sure um, that there are options for our kids. We think that that's important. It doesn't, our teachers are working full time. We're not ex just extending school into the summer, um, but we do hope to at least make sure um, that there are reasonable options out there for your kids um, to have a fun um, and kind of restorative uh, summer. So we hope that that happens. Obviously the big question is September and once again, you know, we can sit here and we can come up with hundreds of contingency plans. We're thinking about lots of those things. We are planning on opening in September. We're planning on being here in September. We're planning on being here likely with modifications in September, whether that's smaller groups or, or, or times or distances. Those are things that is guidance that is yet to come. Remember, March 2nd is when this is when this is all started. It's now May 5th. So we really hope that on June 15th, July 15th, there'll be a lot more information, wisdom, experience out there for us to be able to plan meaningfully and to be able to share those plans with you. Um, we've sent that registration. We hope that you'll respond to registration. We plan on running school next year. We plan on being back. We plan on doing that safely. We plan on doing that responsibly. Um, but that's, that's, that's where we are. Um, I hope that you will find that there's been uh, goodwill all around in, in terms of responding to people's needs, which means that there have been a financial need. We've tried to be responsive to that. Um, if there are uh, fee-for-service types of things that people have been paying for that we're going to make sure that that's calculated and returned to you, um, and that to just, just uh, you know, hopefully generate the goodwill um, that, that, that you deserve um, by, by doing the right thing. At the same time, planning, making commitments to teachers, hiring, um, purchasing equipment, disinfecting schools, all the things that we need to do to be prepared for September, we are going full steam ahead to make sure that we can do that and we commit to you uh, to communicating with you about that um, as we know um, as we know more. Of course, you know, the governor's announcement was just this Friday, so it's obviously, um, it's obviously very young. So in terms of the specifics that people are asking, staggering the school days, staggering the schedules, staggering the days, the answer is basically everything's on the table, but we actually hope to be there and we hope that everyone will be there every day. Um, exactly how that's gonna happen is going to take some time to sort out based on the uh, information that we have. Yes, the ELC building, we, we probably lost about between two and three weeks, but the construction is, con is continuing now. Um, it's deemed essential service and the, the construction is on and we hope to be open by September. It's, it's really moving well and it looks great. Um, so that's obviously another 35,000 square feet that we'll have um, that we didn't have before all of this. So again, uh, I'm gonna pass it on to Rabbi Kroll to, uh, to close, talk about some high school issues and to close. Um, and then thank you again for being part of an amazing community and hope to continue communicating with you on a regular basis. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Rocker. Thank you, Dr. Horowitz. Rabbi Kroll, you're up.
Thank you very much, Rabbi Krauss. Uh, good to see everybody. I just want to spend um, three, four minutes highlighting a few things that are going on in the high school. I want to bring to your attention. Um, I know earlier when we first had these meetings, about a week or so into um, this, uh, you know, what we now know is our current reality, this new normal. I used to high, I used to update people on the number of um, minutes and total hours of Zoom meetings that are taking place. I'm happy to report that uh, it's been now about oh, almost eight weeks, I believe, perhaps more, all the Pesach in the middle. Um, there have been, since we began, 24,835 Zoom meetings. That means that the, the total has been 8,871,946 minutes, which translates into over 147,000 hours of learning that have been going on since this took place over Zoom. Interesting statistics. Um, important to know that there is a lot of good, a lot of solid, meaningful learning that is going on. You speak to many kids, many teachers. It's working, I, just to be honest, better than we had expected to be working. Um, I want to just highlight a few just pieces going on in the high school. Again, those numbers refer academy and high school um, total domain-wide. Uh, a couple things I just want to bring to your attention. Um, we're trying to you know, take the opportunity. Kids do have a little bit more time on their hands and also um, want to be able to give back. So we really um, are rolling out a, um, a number of different chesed opportunities for kids to be involved in. There's a beautiful program going on next week. Um, parents should, you know, kind of keep an eye on this and encourage your kids to be involved. We, um, the uh, hospital um, management at Montefiore has uh, kind of uh, encouraged us to provide, to bake and provide goodies for first responders at Montefiore. So next week, in advisory, people are going to be baking in their homes, and we're then going to be delivering these baked goods to first responders as, as a kind of sign of appreciation from, uh, from the SAR community. Um, we're also sending out tomorrow, you should take a look at, there's a number, many, many um, chesed opportunities um, that are sort of unique to our current situation that we are encouraging our, our students to be involved in, and I encourage parents to look at these, look at these with your children to um, encourage them to get involved. A lot of them involve, can include things like, um, you know, having a, being a big brother um, or a big sister for um, student, for, for developmentally disabled um, young men and women, um, working with other students in other schools. For, we've had a, a, a remarkable um, situation, which we have over 100 high school students have now volunteered to serve as tutors for younger students. Many of them are now tutoring first through fifth graders in SAR Academy, and there, we, have more, we have more tutors than we have kids who need tutoring. So we've been reaching out to other local schools, uh, other local day schools for, for students to get involved in, and they've been responding um, nicely for, for that. Um, I also want to bring to your attention, I think later this evening you're going to get an email um, across the, across the uh, community, both SAR Academy and SAR High School. We're starting an initiative um, this week in the high school for our students, uh, we're calling it SAR CARES, that's C-A-R-E-S, that's Coronavirus Authorities Reflection and Education Series. Uh, we like the acronyms in SAR, if you didn't, if you didn't notice. Um, so the, the SAR CARES program we're doing is we're bringing uh, world experts who have interesting points of view, um, who have been leaders in addressing, um, addressing the needs during the pandemic. Um, and we want, to introduce our students to them, to allow the experience of learning um, during, this, during the pandemic to be one, not just which we're trying to replicate our classrooms as much as possible, but also trying to be responsive to the current reality that we're in, allow kids to meet new people, learn from new people, think about the situation, reflect on it, and to um, grow 
in their understanding of, of our situation. So you take a look at, there are a lot of interesting people we have next. This week we have um, the director of um, the international efforts of Hatzalah United talking about how Israel's managing the situation. Next week we have Senator Biagi. There's a whole list of, of great, um, for, for, uh, uh, we have uh, Micha Goodman from Israel one week, and then we have bioethicists from NYU and a Jewish bioethicist, Rabbi David Shabtai, who's going to be um, kind of speaking to everybody. It's going to be a great series. It's also available to students, to parents and community members um, across the board. So you'll be able to get the link for that. It's not only through Zoom, but also other people to take a look at that. These are just some of the things going on in the high school. We're trying to realize that the learning is good. The learning is important. We need to kind of give students the opportunity to have some free time during the day. We have these, uh, next week we have our Hive Live in Overdrive, which is kind of like some fun activities and a half day of learning, but uh, other fun stuff taking place in the afternoon. We did that in our report Pesach. We're doing that next week. Realizing that the students kind of like, you know, mental health, their health, uh, social emotional development during this time is something we have to really focus on and really trying to be um, attentive to. So those are just some of the things that are going on, um, going on in the high school. Um, I encourage both high school and academy parents really to um, talk about the things that are going on with your kids. Really feel free to stop by, um, you know, in the background as your students are, as your children are learning, there's a lot of interesting learning going on and that you don't usually have the opportunity to, to see. And I encourage everybody to kind of get involved. I think you'll be really proud of the learning that your children are doing and you might learn something too. So um, thank you all very much for coming this evening. It's uh, really wonderful seeing everybody and we look forward to, um, you know, a great week ahead and see you next Monday. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.